This morning, it's not a typical message, as you probably have noticed from the handouts. Uh, we want to talk about Christianity as a historical faith. I've actually uh, been re-studying this, and uh, I thought I would share some of the insights I got this time around in studying this. And uh, I hope it edifies you and gives you encouragement. And you'll see here, why do we really want to study the history of the Bible or the chronology of the Bible? What is the benefit of that? And uh, I hope that uh, uh, you do get that benefit. Now, not everybody here may be a numbers person. I happen to be a numbers person. Uh, I make my living making market intelligence reports, like 250 pages of Excel spreadsheets. So it's a lot of numbers that I have to manage and, and take care of. And a good biblical chronologist has the same issue to collate all the data that God has revealed in the Old Testament. And we're going to reveal some of that to you today. So uh, Christianity is an historical faith. It's based on real people and, and real events that have happened. The beginning of time, point one. The Bible is one of the most remarkable history books in the world. Right from chapter one, the creation of the world. It's the beginning of time as we as human beings know it. In Genesis 1.5, we read, And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And right on it goes through the rest of the chapter. Verse 8, day 2. Verse 13, day 3. Verse 19, day 4. Verse 23, day 5. And then chapter 1, ending with the culmination of creation, man and woman. Ending on day 6 in verse 31. With the same formula we saw with all the previous days. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But I want us to go back and look at, take a closer look at verse 4 of Genesis 1. I'm sorry, day 4 in verse 14 of Genesis 1. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And then day seven was for rest. This is the beginning of time. And this is the way the Jews had been keeping time for the last 60 centuries. The day starts with the evening. 6 p.m. And it ends at 6 a.m. The morning starts at 6 a.m. For the rest of the world. It's where we get our week. It's our work week. Seven days. There's no other definition on how we got the seven days. It comes from the Bible. God set the pattern for our lives. The ancient Jewish calendar before Passover, uh, which happened in Exodus 12.1, started the year at the autumn equinox, the month of Tertia, which happens between September, uh, extends from September to October. And they still do that today for their uh, one calendar. They have two calendars. They have the, the calendar that they use for their government, which is this one, and then they have their equinox. E He's a classical or their uh, biblical week, which starts on Passover. So they have two years that have two different start dates. So they keep actually both patterns that we find in the Bible. As we will see shortly, the year of creation would be known on our calendars 4004 B.C. And one could argue 
that the time of creation was evening, 6 p.m. And the day of the, and on the day of the equinox, September 21st, 4004 B.C. And man was created five days later on September 26th. Now, we can't be dogmatic about the time and uh, the day, but it's reasonable based on the traditions that the Jewish people have kept up, starting their day at 6 o'clock and starting the day on the autumn equinox. Was that hand down by oral tradition from Adam? You know, you can, you can get from Adam to Moses in five generations that could have handed down the oral tradition. So the chronologist dating creation to 4004 B.C., point two. The first one to actually propose this date and the time was James Usher. He lived from 1581 to 1656. And Sir Isaac Newton, besides being a prominent scientist, he was also a prominent theologian could find no error in Usher's calculation for 4004 B.C. Usher was the Archbishop of Armagh. It's the highest position of the Irish Anglican Church, and he was a scholar and a historian of first rank. He entered Trinity College at 13. He prepared a detailed work of the Hebrew chronology in Latin at 15, And he received his master's degree when he was 18. He was a numbers guy. (laughs) An expert in Semitic languages and history. At 20, he was ordained. At 26, he earned a doctorate and became the professor of divinity at Dublin. So great was his repute of tolerance, sincerity, and amassed learning, characterized by some as miraculous, Charles I... uh, And Oliver Cromwell greatly esteemed Usher and awarded him a magnificent state funeral at Westminster Abbey. His epitaph reads, Among scholars, he was the most saintly. Among saints, the most scholarly. Over a five-year period of research and writing, Usher integrated biblical history and secular history. He brought them together. About 15% of the text is this continuous account. And this is a copy of the book, and we'll have it back at the church at the end of the service. It's called The Annals of the World. And it reads like a history book. And he just starts with day one, has some comments. It's about a paragraph or two long, and every date. And he goes through all the way to 4004 B.C. So you see about Alexander the Great, the non-biblical parts, and you see what else is going on in the world. So it's a, it's a great reference tool. For nearly three centuries, until the mid-1900s, when, as another author I'm going to talk about in a second, said the satanic three-prong attack against the word of God in the areas of evolution, textual criticism, and biblical chronology was launched. His dates were almost universally accepted. This assault has resulted in the clouding of the minds of the human race, against the veracity and the accuracy of the Holy Scripture, and subsequently to God's claims on the lives of all mankind. You know, evolution had sunk its teeth into the church. So beginning around 1700, though, the Bible had Usher's dates printed in the margins. And we have two of them back here. We have the Cambridge from 1762 and the Oxford edition from 1769, and you can see those dates in the Bible. And there's only one Bible I know today, and there may be more, but I only know of one that still puts it in the margins. But around the late 1800s, most Bibles stopped when evolution started coming into the church, printing the dates in the Bible. And most of the Bibles that we use don't have the dates in them. But the Schofield Study Bible still has the dates. And for $20, you can get it on christianbooks.com. 
if you want a reference to have all those dates in the Bible. Another chronologist, Edward Greswell, he lived from 1797 to 1869. He also published his works between 1830 and 1850. I've seen both kinds of dates. Uh, I, I can't figure it out exactly uh, when he first published it. But he, his dates are very close to the third author that we'll talk about mostly today. That's about all I know about Greswell. Uh, I can find a reference to his, his, his book, and I put it there in the handout, the title of it. Uh, but I wasn't able to get a copy of it uh, because I was just looking for it yesterday. And, uh, but it, in the book uh, that we're going to refer to in a second, he refers to this guy and he has the major dates, and they line up. And the reason I'm bringing this up next, cause the, for the next author, his name is Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones, there's about 23 people that have tried to do this chronology from the beginning of creation to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and only three have came up with 4004 B.C. Everybody else's dates are different. No one else's dates match up to anybody else's dates, but these three guys all matched up at 4004 B.C. So three centuries later, in 1993, God gifted another scholar that comes along and using the dates from the Bible only determines there are exactly 4,000 years from the date of creation to the birth of Christ. Exactly 4,000 years. His name is Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones, as I just mentioned. He first published it in 1993. And as of 2019, his book is up to the 23rd edition. The book is 373 pages long. And it comes with charts. And we'll have some of them on display over here. That when stretched out from end to end, 12 charts is 107 pages long or about 100 feet. And that's how he started he got this huge, humongous piece of paper and just wrote down everything he could find in the Bible that talked about time. And the reason I read Genesis 1, they kept time by the moon and the sun. And that's how their calendars were organized, is by when the full moon was, when the, the, when the new moon started to the full moon to the waning of the moon till we got to the next new moon. And then evening was the beginning of the day. The other way people kept time in ancient times, and I was watching a, a documentary on archaeology, and they're reading a stone tablet, and he says, well, this tablet is dated. And I go, wait a minute, how is this tablet going to be dated? Is it going to say 2000 BC on it? You know? So I, I, that perked my ears. How is it dated? And it was, comes obvious once you hear it, but they date it based on what, year it is of the reign of the king in that kingdom where you find that. So we find in the 15th year of Tiberius Sirius, Jesus was about 30 years old. And that's how you date it. So two ways of dating things, by the sun and the moon, and by the reign of your king. And how many years did something happen? So that's when we go into archaeology and find things. You date things. Now, this book is really a dissertation of the charts and explains the charts in detail, the thinking and the thoughts that go behind it. So the, the, the charts in the book kind of go hand in hand. So a little bit about this numbers guy. He was conjugating verbs at five, reading sophomore university level at eight, Entered high school at 12, college at 16. At 21, having just begun his doctoral dissertation research in geology with a specialization in paleontology, he was selected to succeed the world's leading authority in his field as the chairman of the paleontology department at the University of Missouri at the age of 22. Over a 14-year span, he worked for Texaco, in Tenneco, 
And you can tell this is a current person. But God grabbed a hold of his heart and he resigned to pursue biblical studies in 1974. I couldn't find exactly how old he is. Uh, But he's in my age category. I've seen pictures of him on the internet. He attained a PhD as well as a THD, uh, a doctor in theology, a doctorate in theology. Dr. Jones has degrees in geology, chemistry, math, theology, and education from six different institutions of higher learning. An honors graduate and an ex-evolutionist, he is an ordained minister in the Southern Baptist Convention. And his way of pursuing this, he's committed to the verbal and plenary inspiration of the scripture. Dr. Jones has twice served as the adjunct professor at Continental Bible College in Brussels, Belgium, and chaired the Department of Biblical Chronology at the Pacific International University. And he and his wife now reside in Houston, Texas. So, reading from this book here, I want to give you his presuppositions to biblical chronology. Because when you go and look at those other 20 people that don't agree with 4004 B.C., they don't depend on the Bible and the Bible alone. They go to secular dates and interject them into the Bible. And that's where those other chronologies go wrong. So here is his philosophy on how he came up with his chronology. This dissertation addresses the conflict between the presuppositions and methodologies utilized by the modern school of biblical chronology, whose procedures rest on the Assyrian canon, the royal inscriptions of the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the Ptolemic Ptolemic canon, and as being absolute and accurate. You can never assume man's history that's fallible is accurate. As opposed to the traditional biblical-oriented school, which regards the Holy Scripture as the factual source of truth against which all other material must be weighted. The proposals that he advances are, there is an academic justification that the chronology of the biblical record can be fully substantiated with an internal formula, documentation, independent of religious overtones. And this internal structure has been preserved in a specific rendering of the biblical record, the original Greek and Hebrew. In support of these propositions, standard objections that you will hear when people go through their chronology and say this or that, well, there's generation gaps. Well, there was a scribal error here. will be met forthright in his dissertation of the solutions and alternatives based on internal data, not by indemnations or denials of what the Bible says, restorations or corrections of the text, and alteration intended to improve. And then from his introduction, Nolan goes on, it's important for the Christians to have a reliable, is it, he, he poses a question, is it important for a Christian to have a reliable text as the basis of his faith and conduct? The obvious answer is yes. Moreover, should not the text be preserved and passed down throughout the centuries, today's generations, be academically defendable? Yes, it should be, and it is, which we will see. As the biblical text contains much information of a chronological and mathematical nature, a careful and thorough investigation of this data, accompanied by detailed charts, should serve as a decisive test as to the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Conversely, the failure of such a study would be seen as a falsification of the divine inspiration, preservation doctrine of the Holy Scripture, long held by the conservative wing of Christianity. Towards that end, a standard chronology of the Old Testament has been constructed utilizing diagrams, charts, and other forms of graphic representation, which addresses the complex subject in a scriptural and scholarly, yet easy, understandable manner. Beginning with creation, recorded in the first two chapters of Genesis, the continuous, unbroken line of dated events embedded within the Holy Scripture is logically followed 
as it spans across 40 centuries to the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be demonstrated that every chronological statement contained in the sacred writ is consistent with all other chronological statements contained herein. So that's the background and how he went about doing this and his philosophy about relying on Scripture and Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. So point number four. Why study the chronology? It'll edify and equip the saints. And that's one of the reasons we gather together is to edify and equip ourselves. Moreover, if the text, and this is still Dr. Nolan writing, moreover, if the text composed as it is by many human authors over a span of many centuries yields itself to such an analysis wherewith all chronological data may be arranged without violation, contradiction, or conflict into a harmonious systematic framework, faith should be all the more solidly founded. Now, you don't have to be a numbers person. Once you see this, what we go through today, you can rely on that and be assured. And if you have a friend that wants to know more about it and you're not a numbers person, hand it to him and let him, you know, tell me where you find the air. <laughs> but if you want to study this, I'll give you some resources or uh, we'll talk about how to get these resources at the end. Such a framework should tend to substantiate the following, which I've outlined in your uh, handout. A divine intellect undergirding both the Old and New Testaments. There has to be a divine intellect for this to all hold together over the 40-some authors over the 40 centuries. The fact of the God of the Bible, God is fact. The divine inspiration of Scripture and faith in God through and in his word. These, in turn, should then act in concert pointing to and certifying the deity of Christ, Jesus, and his gospel. Indeed, if we can thus correctly interpret the history of the past by means of such a systematic framework, it should enhance our understanding of the present, as well as greatly encourage our confidence in the great chronological predictions, prophecies of Scripture, which with regard to the future. End of quote. For me personally, I have been in awe studying this to see that God has been controlling world history from day one. It is amazing when you study this. And it leaves me in no doubt he's in control today, even in these times of the pandemic. And the last point for the narrative, because we'll talk about the charts a little bit, the New Testament saints believed in an historical Old Testament. As I mentioned, Christianity is an historical faith. The Bible is based on the lives of real people and events that lived and took place at specific times in history. The events portrayed in the Bible are not mythological characters. They're not just stories to teach us good lessons like Aesop's fables. The Old Testament is God's revelation to us, revealing his redemptive plan for humanity, for our salvation, all pointing to Christ. The seemingly boring genealogies, the timing of the feasts based on the phases of the moon, all aid the chronologist to, spe to specifically dating the events and the milestones in redemptive history. We can see the New Testament writers believed in historical people and events. And I want to point out some of those. So if you'd like to turn to Hebrews 11, we'll, we'll go through those four sections of Scripture that I have listed in the handout. If you want to turn to those as I go through those. Now, Hebrews 11 is the, the famous chapter known as the faith chapter, or the, the, the great chapter of faith or the hero's of the faith. And in verse 1, it starts out Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And now they're going to, the writer of Hebrews now is going to go through the Old Testament 
these people had to have faith of things not seen, just like we have not seen Jesus Christ. Well, they had to have the hope of the future of Jesus Christ coming, as Ken said, looking forward to the cross, and we look backwards to the cross. So in verse 3, creation is mentioned. Verse 4, Cain and Abel, real people. Verse 5, Enoch. Verse 7, Noah. Verse 8, Abraham. Verse 11, Sarah. Verse 17, we see Abraham offering up Isaac as a sacrifice, the foreshadowing of God sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ. In verse 20, we see about Jacob and Esau. In verse 22, about Joseph. About, in verse 23, about Moses. In verse 27, we see the Exodus. In verse 29, we see the crossing of the Red Sea. These are historical facts that these people believed in. Real people, real time and places. Verse 30, the walls of Jericho tumbling down. Verse 31, the Rahab, the prostitute, saved out of Jericho because that part of the wall didn't fall down where her window was. And then you see, summing up verse 32, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Real events, real people. Now turn to Acts 10. This happened in 41 AD. There's no New Testament yet. Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts as the historical facts of what had happened after interviewing eyewitnesses. In Acts 10.34, we read when Peter is talking to Cornelius Cornelius and his household, the Gentiles. So Peter opened his mouth, verse 34, 1034. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And he's talking between the Jews and the Greeks. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know, there's no faith in this part, they know what was happening throughout Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John, that John proclaimed, and God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. They had that knowledge. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed, of the devil, for God was with him. And they probably knew of people that had been touched by Christ and healed. Then Peter goes on, though, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. So the Gentiles didn't get to see the risen Lord. So now they have to have faith. They had knowledge of Jesus as an historical figure, but they had faith that he rose from the dead, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And we know that they go on to believe and get baptized by the Holy Spirit, just like the original Jews on Passover or on uh, on the Pentecost. Now turn to Acts seven. Acts seven one through fifty three. About this happened about thirty two A.D. This is Stephen's message before he is stoned to death. And this is a good passage to find out the blinded do not want to hear the truth. And we know that today, and I've always said, it's easy to deceive somebody, but it's a lot harder to convince them they've been deceived. But let's back up to 6.13, just before 7.1, verse 13 for a second. And they set up false witnesses. These are the Jewish people that uh, are, uh, want to do Stephen in. So they brought in false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all sat in the council where this court case was happening and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Back to chapter 7 now. Looking down at verse 6, looking at the historical references again. Talks about Abraham and his descendants sojourning in Canaan and Egypt for 400 years. Verse 8, he talks about Isaac and Jacob. Verse 9, Joseph. Verse 11, the famine in Egypt. Verse 15, Jacob and his remaining family moving to Egypt. Verse 19, after Joseph's slavery for the house of Jacob. Verse 22, Moses fleeing the Egyptian when he was 40. Verse 29, Moses fleeing to Midian. Verse 30, Moses' encounter with the burning bush on Mount Sinai. All historical references of real events and real people. Spoiler alert, Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula. The burning bush on Mount Sinai is in the land where Moses went for 40 years, Midian. Verse 36, Moses is doing miracle, including the parting of the Red Sea and led them into the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 40, Aaron is noted, the older brother of Moses, and the idol of the golden calf is noted. Verse 44, God instructed them to build the tabernacle, a tent of witness. Verse 45, Joshua and David are referred to. Verse 47, Solomon is referred to in building the temple. And we get down to verse 51, his closing remarks. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? As they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as a deliverer by angels and did not keep it. And look down at verse 56. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the sons of man standing at the right hand of God. And next chapter, next. But they, the Jewish people, the, cried out with a loud voice. They didn't want to hear him say that. They're trying to drown him out, stop their ears, and rush together at him. And then stoned him to death. And as we know, he said, please, Lord, forgive him of this sin as he was dying, being stoned to death. Now let's turn to Acts 2. 14. This is the day of Pentecost. We're only 50 days after the resurrection. So what are these new saints that we're going to about to hear about? What do they believe? They don't remember? We don't have the New Testament yet. They have to believe in the Holy Scripture, which was the Old Testament. That's what they had at the time. Verse 16 speaks of Joel and the prophecy of the day of Pentecost that they're experiencing, which is a foretaste of what's to come because it's a two-part prophecy of the current Pentecost and in the future beyond that. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22 and 23, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. They didn't need faith at this point. They knew. They, they saw the works and wonders that God was doing. This is the time when people were speaking different languages. But they're speaking in the languages of all the Jewish people that came from all different parts of the world for Passover and preaching the good news to them in their language so they can understand what is happening. These are the, some of the mighty signs and wonders that are being, so they experience it. They couldn't understand. Earlier, you, you say they thought they were drunk. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless man. References coming right out of Isaiah 53. Scripture pointing to Christ. Verse 29, David is still dead in his tomb. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And all of that we are witnesses. Again, these are the apostles speaking. This is Peter speaking. He's a witness. And collectively he's talking about the apostles. We are witnesses. Verse 37, so now we need faith. Now then, they heard this that they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? A totally opposite reaction of what we just saw with St. Stephen. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's preaching the good news. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The early church was not a small church. And the Lord added to their number, down in verse 47, day by day, those who were being saved. And later on, we'll see priests out of the Jewish system are being saved as well. So to these new converts, the Old Testament people and the events were real, literal people that lived and happened in the time of in the frame of the Old Testament described. We don't have all the time to go into all the people that Jesus attested to from the Scripture. He talked about Jonah and the big fish. And he talked about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were real things, not fairy tales. Do you know the only way we can know history? There's only one way we can know history. Science can't do it. Science can't go back in time to prove anything. An eyewitness. You have to have a reliable eyewitness to tell what's happened in the past. Science can't prove when George Washington lived and that he was the first president of the United States. Science can't prove when you were born. We believe these things because we have reliable eyewitnesses. All the historical textbooks agree that George Washington was the first president of the United States and believe when we were born based on the testimony, the eyewitness of our parents and the testimony and the eyewitness of maybe the hospital that you was born on that issued a birth certificate as a reliable eyewitness that that's when and where you were born. That's how we know our history, eyewitnesses. And we believe the Bible because God is the eyewitness of creation. He was there in all of world history. And he is the ultimate author of the Bible, using men as his instruments to write it down. And as I mentioned, it's amazing to me, 40, over 40 authors, we don't know them all, written over 1,500 years, completely non-contradictory. There's no other book in the world like it. The book of, uh, the Muslim book, uh, just the Koran. Tons of contradictions in the Koran. It's, uh, it's like two halves. The first half and the second half contradicts the first half. And I brought that up once to a teacher that was trying to tell me that we all worship the same God. And I said, well, why does it say that? Oh, well, he wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't fully aware of everything yet until he got you know, over here this part of his life. No, it's contradictory. And to think that the first part of the Bible, the first written word of the Bible is actually written by God's finger of the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets that Moses brought down from my Sinai. There's no other book in the world that can come close to comparing to the Bible. So let's use the Bible to build the timeline from creation to crucifixion. It turns out God has given us pillars of time in big chunks that we can go through today and uh, convince you from the Bible that creation was 4004 BC. So in Genesis first, I mean, it, we look at the genealogies. I mentioned that's one way we tell time. Genesis 5, verse 1. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And then it goes on through all the genealogy like that, which is in the bottom half of the second page of your, of your handout, uh, that first part of Genesis 5 for your reference. And there's a larger copy. I know it's hard to read, but I have a larger copy copy of this on display over there. So now if we, we know Adam lived from 0 to 930, from the day of creation to, to 930, we can start numbering the beginning of time as labeled as AM, is the way historians have done it. AM is Latin for Anno Monday, meaning year of the world. So Adam lived to 930 AM. If you look at the timelines all the way to the end of verse 28, we get to Noah is born in 1056 a.m. And then when you go to Genesis 7, 6, you find out Noah was born, uh, was born 600 years. He, I'm sorry, Noah was 600 years at the time of the flood. So adding 600 years to when Noah was born in 1056, you add 600 years to that and you come to 1656 a.m. So now we know that creation to the flood is 1,656 years. Next, we move to Genesis 11. I don't have those for reference for you in the, in the handout. In verse 10, we see that the flood was two years long. And then we go through the geology of Shem. We get to Abraham's birth in the year of 2008. And in Genesis 12, 4, it tells us Abraham was 75 years old when he received the call from God. So you add 2008 plus 75, you're up to 2083. So the difference between 2083 and 1656 is the 427-year, another pillar of time that we have from the flood to Abraham's receiving the canon, beginning the covenant, and the sojourn. And if you look at the timeline, it's in your handout you'll see these time pillars across the top of the page in the, in the references to those time gaps that we're talking about. So you'll see the 1656 time gap, the 427-year time gap, and now we come to the 430-year time gap, or time pillar, not, I shouldn't say gap, time pillar. Genesis 12, 40 uh, and 41, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So that brings us to Exodus. But I want to go back to the King James version of that verse. Because it sounds like the way the ESV writes it, lived in Egypt was 430 years. But that's not the case. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And even the Geneva Bible, I went to look up and see what they had. And they had a a marginal note. It says, for Abraham's departing, from Ur in Chaldea until ye departing of ye children of Israel from Egypt are 430 years. But we don't have to rely on those footnotes. We can go to Galatians 3.17 that clears this up for us. That is what I mean, Paul is writing. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So he's defining the 430 years from Abraham receiving the covenant when he's still in Canaan till they leave Egypt to the Exodus in 14, what turns out to be 1491 B.C., 2083 A.M. 
I'll tell you how we get to the B.C. dates in just a second. Remember back in Acts 7, 6 uh, that I read, and, and God spoke to this effect, that his offsprings would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. I, met, I referenced 400 years when I was going through Acts 7. Well, that's different than the 430 years. So I want you to understand, you, these all, what could be apparent contradictions can be explained. You have to go back and read the sentence again. And God spoke to this fact that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners for 400 years. He's referring to Isaac. Isaac became the official named heir to Abraham 30 years after the sojourn in Cana. So you subtract 30 from 430, you got 400 years for Isaac to sojourn. Abraham, till the end, was 430 years. Isaac, till the end of the Exodus, is 400 years. Okay. Uh, I don't have this in the, uh, uh, anything more there for you to look at. Uh, it, we can look at the... Uh, uh, let's go to the, the next one. 480 years plus 37 years that you see at the top. And uh, you, can re- you can get those by looking at 1 Kings 6, 1. We'll let you do that on your own. And 1142. So we're talking about the Solomon's tunnel... Uh, Solomon's temple being built in the fourth year of Solomon, and then 37 later, years later, the end of Solomon and the destruction of the temple. And then we have another 390 years in Ezekiel 4-5 that takes us to when Judah falls in 586 B.C. And you can see up there in the top, I've got 586 B.C. in a different color. This is how we synchronize Scripture. This is a secular event that the Bible timeline intersects a secular timeline that's pretty much cast in stone, 586 B.C. So now we can say 34.18 a.m. lines up with 586 B.C., and we can take it all the way back now and align that timeline with that, and and that gives you 4004 B.C. for 0 a.m., and that's how the time is synchronized. So now the last thing we need to synchronize is Jesus Christ's time. And you'll see down on the, on the right-hand side, another purplish color, Jesus baptized 26 A.D. or 4029 A.M. And the way we know that, it's in the 15th year of Tiberius. And he was about 30 years old. Back that up, you get to 4 B.C. By the way, when you go from A.D. to B.C., you have to subtract one year. When you subtract the two, the two dates, if you're, if you're trying to figure out how many years there are between them, because there's no zero. It goes from A.D. 1 to 1, B, or 1 B.C. to A.D. 1. There's no, there's no zero. So, now, we also know from secular history, that's when uh, Herod died in 4 B.C. So now we know that's actually the, uh, the latest that Jesus Christ's birth could be done is because it had to be done during the life of Herod, according to the Bible. So, uh, so that lines up. Uh, so the story about the wise men coming two years later is two years too late because they came in the time of Herod. So they had to come really quick right after Jesus' birth. So there's a lot of little things you learn when you study this chronology to figure out a lot of these songs that we sing and stuff, you know, come out of tradition, but not, might not necessarily uh, being uh, uh, factual. There are other, other interesting things. I just want to share a few more things with you before we close. Uh, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And uh, that's kind of below... Uh, where the Jesus baptized, you'll see some more text down there. And Jesus prophesied about the temple in A.D. 70 falling. 
in Luke 13, 35, in Luke, 10, Luke 19, 43 through, uh, that's right, 33 to 34. I, I typed it wrong in my notes here. Uh, in 1335, behold, your house is forsaken, Jesus tells him. And then in Luke 19, 33, he says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not have one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he exactly describes what happened that we know from historical history. But I didn't know this when I first did this timeline like 10 years ago. You know, Ezekiel 4-5 is what tells us there's 390 years, that one 390-year gap to the falling of, of the uh, temple in 586 B.C. For I signed you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. But Ezekiel 4.6 goes on and says, I'll give you the 40 years until the destruction of Jerusalem. So the text actually says, and when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time. So it's a dual prophecy, a first time and a second time. But on their, your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arms, arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. So we know 40 years later, it happened. So what does Josephus, the historic Greek, I mean the Jewish historian, who also was a Jewish general, but then he became a historian for the Romans. I don't know how the fellow Jews felt about that, but uh, he was writing down the history for, the, for Titus. The final sage of Jerusalem began exactly 40 years to the day from when Christ was crucified. That's how exacting God's timelines are sometimes. Nisan 1430 A.D. to Nisan 1470 A.D. And no stones were left unturned. The stones were gilted in gold and the soldiers wanted the gold. They took them all down and melted the gold off the stones. No st and Titus tried to stop them. But this was their reward for being good soldiers. They were taking the, the plunder. Even the Jewish sages, who certainly have no reason to assist us in the determination implying an A.D. 30 crucifixion, Josephus writes in his wars, the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds tell us that every night for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, this means from when Christ was crucified till the destruction of the temple, the main western candle on the golden lampstand went out in spite of all efforts to keep it continually burning, which was their tradition. Moreover, the great brass temple gates, which were closed each evening, swung open every night on their own accord. And those gates were so heavy, it took over 20 men to close it. Interesting. A little tidbit from history. It's secular history, so you've got to take it for that. But it's, it kind of substantiates what the Bible is saying. So what year is it since the day of creation here in 2021? 4004 B.C. plus 2021 B.C. gets us to 6,025 Minus one for crossing the BCAD line, and we get the day of creation was 6,024 years ago. A long way from what the evolutionists say. And you can check the app and my message about that if you want to know more about evolution and, and uh, how it's not scientific. 6,024 a.m. on a Monday, year of world. 
What does a calendar, Jewish calendar say? They've got the same Old Testament. How long do they say the world's been around? They date the world at 5,781. And it began on an evening. And, and for this year, or for 2020, this, the year of 5,781 begins on 18 September 2020. Same way the usher concluded that maybe at the autumn equinox, September 18, 2020, and will end on the evening of 6 September 2021. So next year, it's September 6, not September 18th. That's a 243-year difference, making creation at 3,761 B.C. There's many mistakes that are in there. Uh, Dr. Nolan goes through the mistakes. But there's an intentional mistake to conceal the fact that Daniel 9.25 prophesies clearly points to Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth as the fulfillment of their four long-awaited Messiah. They did not want that to happen. They had to change the timeline so it did not point to Jesus Christ. So you shift it by 243 years, and you're pointing to somebody 243 years after Jesus Christ. Well, that's not, uh, it, it shifts a little bit. Uh, the 483-year the prophecy only shifted 132 years. I'll get to that in just a second. So what it does point to is somebody they thought was the, someone else they thought was the Messiah, a, name, a man named Simon Bar-Koba. In 132 AD, he led a Jewish revolt and established a Jewish independent state for three years. And he was considered the coming Messiah. But like David, he's dead in his tomb. So I don't know why they would think he's the Messiah. And it did not go well for, for, for the, the revolt. When Rome responded, 985 villages were destroyed. 50 fortified towns. And 580,000 people slaughtered. So, to help you understand this better, some tidbits I wanted to share. Unfortunately, we ended up a little bit on a downer there note. But uh, we have on display Dr. Jones' timelines over there. Uh, chart 6 is the one that culminates the whole thing. So it's, it's laid out from t on the far right table over there if you want to look at that. I have the uh, Cambridge opened up there, the Cambridge Bible on the back table. If you want to see, uh, look to your favorites scripture in, in uh, the Old Testament and see when that when it actually happened in time. In the upper right-hand corner, in the upper left-hand corner, you'll see the dates of, of each page and when it actually happened. And like I mentioned, you can get the Schofield Study Bible if you want to have a, a, a Bible that's easy to handle. The good news is all these resources are available on PDFs. Dr. Nolan Jones has doesn't really print the book anymore. You want the latest version, you actually have to download it. And I'll, uh, uh, through our church emails, we'll send you those PDF links. And if you're not on the email uh, list and you want to get on it, uh, you'll see my, my email address in the lower left-hand corner or email the church and, and we'll get those links to you if you want to get all these. You'll get, the, you'll get the book, you'll get Usher's book, you'll get all the charts, uh, and uh, even Pilgrim's Progress is in there. So you have everything on PDF. So you can uh, read this at your own desire and your own pace. Uh, there are older versions of the book, hard copy, that you can get on Amazon. Uh, this one's actually newer than what's being sold on Amazon. So uh, there must be some, some people that have some left in stock. So let, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I pray that studying 
your biblical chronology that you left us for and gifted certain men to help us decipher all the times and events in the Bible truly edifies us that you are the sovereign God, control of all world history. And what you are revealing to us is your plan of redemption for us, of Christ that you crucified on our behalf. He laid down his life voluntarily for us to save us from our sins. You and only you can do that, a sovereign God. And as Paul tells us in Romans 10, a witness to the risen Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believed and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you have not called on the name of this Lord, let today be your day of salvation. Get down on your knees, repent, and confess your sins to the sovereign, almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for your sins. And you will be saved if you pray that with a sincere heart and you truly believe these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.